in the beginning was matter. And matter got the amoeba. And the amoeba begot the worm. The worm begot the fish. The fish begot the amphibian. The amphibian begot the reptile. The reptile begot the mammal. The mammal begot the lemur. The lemur begot the monkey. The monkey begot the man who imagined God. This is the genealogy of man. I'd say you disagree with that genealogy, but it is a direct quote, almost verbatim, from a man by the name of Charles Smith. Charles Smith put for us, in a nutshell, the atheistic philosophy. The idea that there is no God, that this material universe is the only thing that is now, that ever was, or ever will be. There's another idea. Basically, these are the only two that have a serious discussion going on at the present. It goes something like this. You might have heard it before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God divided the light from the darkness. And the light He called day. The darkness He called night. An evening and a morning, first day. And subsequently, day two, God creating the expanse. Day three, the flowers, grass, and trees. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and fish. Day six, animals and man, ceasing his creative activity on the seventh day. The fact of the matter is, there is a God or there is not a God. One of those two ideas is right. And so we're here this evening to decide which of those two ideas has merit. Which of those two ideas is correct. It might come as a surprise to you that many people in the United States of America are thinking that the idea of atheism is the one that is correct. In fact, the ever-increasing numbers of people in our country are starting to contend that there is no God. About 20 years ago, they did a survey, asked the average person on the average street in the average town of the United States of America, do you believe that there is a God and or are you associated with some type of religion? In that particular survey about 20 years ago, 91% of the people who were asked said yes. We believe that there is a God and we are affiliated with some type of religion. 91%, that left 9% who said, we do not believe that there is a God and or we are not affiliated with any type of religion. 9%. They did the survey about 10 years later, and about 15% said they did not believe that there was a God and or they were not associated with any type of religion. Leaving still about 85% of the people who said, yes, we do but here's the disturbing fact of that survey. The 5 to 6 percentage point jump is the fastest growing religious group in our country. You understand what I'm telling you? Unbelief is the fastest growing religion in the United States of America. When I was 16, 17 years old, I grew up in Columbia, Tennessee, Right there below Nashville, buckle of the Bible belt. If you had asked me, that's about 20 years ago now, had you asked me or the 50 to 60 young people with whom I grew up, do you guys know someone who is an atheist? I did not meet someone who was an atheist until I was well into my 20s. In fact, had you asked me when I was a teen if I knew someone who was an atheist, I probably would have had to get you to define the word for me. It would have been such an unfamiliar concept. That was 20 years ago. I teach at a summer camp in Hamilton, Alabama, the Maywood Christian Camp. Have for about the last four or five years, I teach the 15 through 18-year-olds. About four years ago, I decided I was going to start asking them a question. How many of you know someone who's an atheist? The first year I had 42 kids, 32 of them said they did. The next year I had 40 kids, 30 of them said they knew someone who was an atheist. Several of them said, we have friends who are atheists. One of the young men who was sitting on the 
front first or second row of the class came up to me after at Maywood Christian Camp and said, I am an atheist. Said, I don't believe that there's a God. I'm just here with one of my friends. If you would have said 20 years ago to me, Kyle, you are going to need to go around this country and explain to people the evidence that proves that there is a God, I think I probably would have laughed in your face. And Father, you've got to be kidding. Everybody knows that. Surely there's not going to be a need for us to rebuild the most foundational truth of Christianity that there is a God. That seems so fundamental, but it's not so fundamental to so many people. In fact, with the advent of the Internet and all of the various ideas of unbelief and atheism, it has come to us to defend the existence of God. I was in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., and I was doing a seminar slash meeting very much like this. One of the young men who was there, he was a junior in high school, he said, you know, at our school, uh, you can't even read the Bible at all. I said, what do you mean you can't read the Bible? He said, well, I was just sitting in my off period. It was a study hall, and I was reading the Bible and the vice principal came by and she said, I see that you're reading the Bible. I don't want to see that book in your hand again at this school. Put it in your backpack and put it up. That book has nothing whatsoever to do with what we do here. His eighth grade brother was sitting next to me as we were eating lunch and he said, oh yeah. He said, if you go into the library and you type in Christianity or the Bible, all of those sites are blocked. You can't get to them at all. You can't access anything about the Bible or Christianity from our school library. I said, what about other stuff? He said, oh, yeah, all kinds of other stuff. But he said, just like pornographic sites are blocked, so are all the sites about the Bible and Christianity. The Williamson County School System right there in Nashville, I was just below it a few miles. There was a grandmother. She said that her third grade son went to school and there was a period of time called drop everything and read, period. And you could just bring whatever book that you wanted to bring to drop everything and read time, just supposed to be to get you excited about reading. Said her third grade grandson brought a Bible. The teacher said, no, you cannot bring a Bible to drop everything and read time. You have to bring some other book. You can't read a Bible. He wasn't reading it out loud. He, wasn't, he was just reading it at his desk. And the teacher said, no, you cannot do that. If you think that you're going to be able to hold on to your belief in God and not confront our culture about it, and continue to get to espouse it freely, you have another thing coming. Because if the Christians today do not stand up and defend the truth of the existence of God, the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Christ, the three pillars of Christianity, in the not-too-distant future in the United States of America, you will not have the privilege to freely stand up and defend that truth. And I'll show you how I know that to be the case. So let's come to our question for this evening. Is there a God? You know what we're told often by the atheistic community is, well, you poor religious people, y'all are so confused. Uh, your moms and your dads have always told you that there is a God. You hadn't really ever thought through it yourself. Most of the time when you step into that church building, you check your brains at the door. You don't really critically analyze anything that you think. And you just believe it because there's a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart. And it makes you feel good to think that there's somebody up there watching out for you. You've never really thought about the validity of the belief. You just believe it because everybody that you know that you think is the greatest person ever believes it. And so if you would just give it a little thought, if you would just critically analyze it and think through it, you'd know better than that. You ever heard anything like that? Oh, that's pretty standard, isn't it? You poor, ignorant non-critical thinking Christians who check your brains at the door and don't think through your belief in God. Well, now, how is the atheistic position presented? Oh, that's the position where these people aren't having an axe to grind at all, are they, according to them? In fact, they're the ones that are following the truth wherever it leads, and that truth has happened to lead them into the enlightened, the enlightened view that there is no God and they have shaken off the shackles of belief, and now they are seeing the world as it really is. That's what you're told on a regular basis. Do you know that nothing could be further from the truth? 
Do you know that if you really just wanted to follow the evidence, that's all you wanted to do, you just wanted to look at the facts of the matter. Well, if that's all we did, let's see where it would lead us. Do you understand that there are some of the most fundamental laws of science that point overwhelmingly to one of these conclusions? It's not the one that the media tells you it is. You know, we'll start with uh, understanding a law of science. You know what a law of science is. A law of science is something that describes the way that nature works wherever a person may find him or herself. If you're in Hawaii, this law works. If you're on the moon, this law works. If you're in Missouri, this law works. You understand laws like gravity. If I flip a coin up, which way is this coin going to go every single time that I flip it? Well, it's going to go toward the earth at 9.8 meters per second squared, whether you like it or not. Now, let's say, see, and if I don't catch it, it's still going all the way down. I'm not even going to pick it up. I'll just get another one. Now, let's say you don't like the law of gravity. Let's say that, you know, the law of gravity, it's doing some stuff to you. You just not really enjoy it. When you get out of bed in the morning, your foot goes down to the floor. And you think, I'd kind of like it to hover. I don't really want it to drop to the floor. I'd like it to just hover from my bed. And you think, I'd like to change that. And so you start getting on the phone and you call one million of the most brilliant scientists in the world and you say, guys, I've got something I'd like to adjust, really. The law of gravity hadn't been liking it lately. Can we fix it? They said, well, let's get together and vote on it. And so they do. You get a million of the most brilliant scientists in the world, and you pack them in an auditorium, and you say, guys, we've been having trouble with the law of gravity. Let's vote to change it. And they say, let's do it. All those in favor of changing the law of gravity say, I, 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 everybody votes to change it. You say, great, we just had a million of the most brilliant scientists in the world just voting on the law of gravity. Now, to prove that we've changed it, all we need is a volunteer to step off a 20-story building. Go ahead. We just need one volunteer. You know, we're probably not going to get many takers on that, are we? Well, maybe we don't have enough smart scientists. Let's get two million. Two million is not going to do it either, is it? Well, let's get a billion. You know, why don't we see if we could get a unanimous vote from every single human being on the globe at 7.68 billion people or so and get them all to vote to change the law of gravity and then see if we have a single volunteer to step off a 20-story building. Guess what? doesn't matter who you get to vote, do you? Does it? It's never going to change. That's a scientific law. Now, there is the most fundamental scientific law in existence today. It's called the law of cause and effect. You guys understand it. You use it on a regular basis. You use it every day. You're actually very... Uh, serious scientist, although you might not know that you are, let me explain to you. Uh, this would be hypothetical, but suppose that we were here this evening and we had this songbook right here. Uh, now, work with me, this is hypothetical, but suppose that you were paying amazing attention to every word that I said. In fact, you weren't thinking about what you had for supper or what you're going to eat for a snack when you leave here. You weren't thinking about the person sitting beside you. You weren't thinking about all of the ball games that are going to be played tomorrow or the hunting that you're trying to decide if you're going to skip to come here tomorrow or not. You weren't thinking about it. Now, like I said, this hypothetical. I know it's Missouri deer hunting. You can't not think about that. But, I mean, let's say you could. And all of a sudden... That songbook shot across this room going 95 miles an hour and smashed into the back wall into what? Oh, 885 pages. And your eyes got as big as saucers and you whipped your head around to me and you said, Kyle, what caused that? And I said, nothing. Sometimes songbooks spontaneously shoot themselves across rooms at 95 miles an hour. Now, then you would probably say, uh, Brother Rook, I don't know where you got this guy, but uh, you need to send him back because even here we know that you know, songbooks don't spontaneously shoot themselves across rooms. You know why? Because there's a fundamental scientific law that is at play in every single physical interaction that you've ever been a part of. And that is that every material effect has a cause that is greater than it and came before it, 
or sometimes is simultaneous to it. That's the law of cause and effect. You use it every single day. In fact, without the law of cause and effect, everything that we know to be scientific could not work. What is the whole purpose of science? To try to find the cause of something. When someone is trying to find a cure for cancer, what are they trying to do? Why is it that this cancer cell is able to grow so rapidly? What are they looking for? The cause of it. Why is it that this germ is being passed from this place to this place? What are they looking for? The cause. Every single scientific endeavor is looking for a cause. Now, do we have a material effect? that we need an answer for. Oh yes, just so happens that the universe is a material effect. We need an answer for this material effect. According to the law of cause and effect, there has to be a cause that came before this universe and that was greater than this universe. Do you know what the current theory from the atheistic side is as to how this universe got here? I'll give it to you. For the last 12 and a half years, it was 13.7 billion years ago. About six months ago, they came forward and they said, you know what, we've been wrong on those dates, really. It's now 13.82. So here's the theory. 13.82 billion years ago, there was absolutely nothing. No energy, no vacuum, no space, no time, nothing. And out of nothing popped a tiny singularity that exploded in what is called the Big Bang. That explosion brought this universe, space, time into existence. From that explosion, a single element originally was here, the element of hydrogen. That hydrogen started coalescing into stars. Those stars started blowing up and creating all the elements that we have. And about 4.8 billion years ago, our sun coalesced out of those elements, and then the earth started spinning around the sun. That's the current atheistic idea as to how we got here. Now, if we wanted to apply scientific laws to the atheistic idea, the first question we would ask is, where did you get the original ball of stuff? Did you hear their answer? A man by the name of Stephen Hawking, who is at the present the leading theoretical physicist in the world. I don't know if you have ever seen him. He did the Curiosity program on, I think, what was it, the History Channel or something, a Discovery Channel, actually it was. He has Lou Gehrig's disease. He gets around in a chair by moving a single inch of his cheek, if I understand it correctly. They have a computer designed so that he can pull up the text that he wants to say, and he can, using his cheek and his eyes, pick whatever he wants to say and make sure it plays over the intercom that they have, etc. Amazing. If I understand it correctly, the man's IQ is off the chart. In his latest book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking said this, the universe popped into existence out of nothing. Let me ask you a question. And I don't mean to insult your intelligence at all. If there ever was a time when there was absolutely, literally nothing, what would you have right now? Nothing. Something can never come from nothing. It violates the fundamental law of science, the law of cause and effect. We have a material effect, the universe. We have to have a cause that came before the universe and that was greater than the universe. The atheistic community, their most brilliant, brightest mind, says this universe popped into existence out of nothing. When you ask them, okay, hold on just a second. Do you mean to tell me that you have a scientific law that would allow that to happen? They say, no. Okay, maybe I'm misunderstanding. Do you have some examples of stuff popping into existence out of nothing? No then why in the world would you suggest that? Well, I mean, if you don't, then there's got to be a... I mean, if you don't, there has to be a... Uh, there's got to be something supernatural. There's got to be something that's not nature. And uh, we've already ruled that out. How? 
Well, we just have. Have you ruled it out because it's not in accord with the scientific law? No, we just uh, we just don't want there to be anything supernatural. You see, the only reason that you would rule out God is that if you have, from the start of the conversation, said we're not going to allow that entity into the discussion. Now, let's look at something else. Uh, how big was that tiny ball of stuff that they supposedly say pop into existence out of nothing? Number one, if we just wanted to stop right here and say, you can't get something from nothing, the conversation really is over. It's kind of like that old joke. The scientist goes to God and he says, God, I just don't think you've done too good of a job making this universe. And God says, you don't. You don't think I've done a, a good job making the universe? scientist says, no, I just don't think you've done too good of a job. He says, I think I could do a better job myself. God says, you think you could do a better job yourself? Scientist says, yeah, I think I could. God says, all right, let's have a contest. Scientist says, okay, that's great. Who goes first? God says, you can. Scientist bends down, he picks up some dirt to start. God says, hold on just a second. You've got to get your own dirt. Where do the atheists get their own dirt? They cannot get it. And so they have to suggest the irrational idea that something popped into existence from absolutely, literally nothing. But here's their second problem. The second problem with this idea is that tiny thing that supposedly popped into existence out of nothing. Here's what they say. They say it was 10 to the negative 24 centimeters across. Now, I don't know if you've done much calculation about how big 10 to the negative 24 centimeters is, but that's a point. Zero, 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 24, a point, 24 zeros, and then you have a one after the decimal point. So if you were going point, zero, 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 24 and then one, and that's the fraction of a centimeter that this ball of stuff was supposed to be. Now, let's see why that's a problem. How big is the universe, really? Uh, you ever tried to count the stars? No, years ago, they thought you could. And in 150 B.C., a guy by the name of Hipparchus said, I'm going to count the stars. And so he started counting. And I think Hipparchus counted about 1,005 or so. He said, that's it. There are 1,005 stars. They said, wow, that's impressive. A man by the name of Tycho Brahe in about 1475 said, no, Hipparchus, you're off. There are only 777. You counted some of them twice. Uh, Johannes Kepler, 25 years later, Said Tico, no, I think uh, Hipparchus actually was a little bit close to right. I think he said there are about 1,056. 1,056 stars. How many stars are there? Uh, they said, and when I say they, I'm just talking about the people who uh, say that they have some answers to these types of questions. Uh, about a year and a half ago, they said in our one galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, there are 100 billion stars. Now, help you get your mind around that number, 100 billion. If you could count to 10,000 every single day, if you got up in the morning and counted to 10,000, now, I don't know why you would want to do that. The other day, my son drew. He's 10 now. I guess he was about 8. Uh, my wife gets on to me for saying the other day when it was about 5 years ago, you know. But anyway, uh, he was about eight, and he gets up earlier than we do on Saturday mornings. And he got up, and I was talking to him at breakfast, and I said, uh, Drew, what would you do this morning? He said, oh, I woke up early. I said, yeah, what would you do when you got up early? He said, I counted. I said, you counted? I said, what would you count? He said, oh, nothing. I just laid in my bed and counted. I said, uh, what would you count to? He said, 3,000. I said, so you just laid in your bed and counted to 3,000. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that. I have never had the urge to wake up and count to 3,000. My son apparently had. Now, suppose that you had the urge to wake up and count to 10,000 every single day. Day one, 10,000. Day two, another 10,000. Every week, you'd count 70,000. Now, let's say that you had a star that represented every one of those numbers you counted. One, two, three, four. For the first 10,000, you had a star. The next 10,000... Do you know how long it would take you to count to 100 billion, counting 10,000 every single day? It wouldn't take you 100 years. It wouldn't take you 1,000 years. It wouldn't take you 10,000 years. It would take you 27,000 years to count to 100 billion. And uh, they told us 
about two years ago that that's how many stars are in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, they came out about two years ago and said, guys, we've been saying there are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy for the past several years. We were wrong. In fact, because of the space dust and things that have been marring our vision into the galaxy, we now think that there are 300 billion to 400 billion stars in our one galaxy. Uh, the sun's a middle-sized star. You can put one million Earths inside of the sun. It's one million times bigger than the Earth. There are some stars that are 450 times bigger than the sun. You can put 450 million Earths in several millions, tens of millions of those 300 billion stars that are in our one galaxy. How many galaxies do they estimate that there are out there? A hundred billion. Uh, that's just what they estimate now. You know, uh, tomorrow they might come back and say, you know, we've estimated there are 100 billion galaxies. Actually, we couldn't see them all, and we now think there are 300 billion galaxies. Now let me try to help you see how big a galaxy is. Our Milky Way galaxy, and you can always remember the Milky Way galaxy, can't you? You know, those other galaxies, they got like Latin names, like Andromeda galaxy. We got a candy bar name, Milky Way galaxy. I mean, you can't, you can't beat the candy bar name, Milky Way galaxy. You know how big our one galaxy is? It's average. It's not even big at all. It's very, very average. If you could start on one side of the Milky Way galaxy, let's just say you were on the edge of it. And let's say you could travel the speed of light. Now, the speed of light is 186,302 miles per second. That means if light actually would bend around the equator of the Earth, it would go around the equator of the Earth seven times in a single second. One Mississippi, boom. Light just went around the center of the uh, equator of the Earth seven times, if that's the way light travels. You travel, if you go traveling the speed of light for one year, you travel 586 quadrillion miles. Now, what in the world that number means, I don't know. I just memorized it. I have no idea what 586 quadrillion is. That's a light year. That's how far you travel if you're going the speed of light in a single year. Understand what I'm saying here? Now, if we could start on this side of the Milky Way galaxy and travel the speed of light to get across our one galaxy, going 586 quadrillion miles a year, it's not going to take you 10 years. It's not going to take you 100 years. It's not going to take you 1,000 years or 10,000 years. We're traveling 186,000 miles a second, and it's going to take us 100,000 years to get across one galaxy. And where did that come from? Oh, the atheistic idea that it popped into existence out of nothing, and then that tiny singularity that was 10 to the negative 24 centimeters across exploded into a galaxy. Not a galaxy. Not a million galaxies. Not 10 million, 100 billion galaxies. That it'll take you 100,000 years traveling the speed of light to get across a single one. Now, listen to me. You see I haven't quoted a lot of scripture here because I'm making a singular point. Why does the psalmist in Psalm 19, 1 through 3 say, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night utters knowledge. There is no voice, no language where their sound is not heard. Why does the text say that, do you think? Because if you're in China and you don't speak English, you can look up into the sky and you can know that there has to be a cause greater than what you're looking at. If you're in Hawaii, if you are in Antarctica, if you are in India, there is no language where the voice of the heavens is not understandable. And what does it say? Declares the what? The glory of God. Now, the atheist says, well, you mean to tell me that we live in a universe that is so large 
And God put humans on the tiny speck of earth and He wasted all that other space and there's nothing that lives out there. There are no aliens. There are no other planets with humans on them. He just made all that and put humans on this tiny little planet and wasted all that other space. Well, hold on just a second. There's a very good reason why He would make a universe that big. So that it would be the epitome of of absurdity to say it popped into existence out of nothing and then exploded from a tiny ball of matter 10 to the negative 24 centimeters across. You would have to violate every law of rationality and science to come to that conclusion. In fact, you would have to take leave of everything you know to be a fact. Oh, and that's why Psalm 14, 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because you honestly would have to take leave of every single aspect of right thinking to conclude that. God didn't leave the door open for that option. He did everything he possibly could do to show there has to be an all-powerful supernatural creator. The truth is, this lesson could go for two and a half hours. When I stand up here, I just decide what parts am I going to skip tonight. I'm going to take you to one other piece of evidence for the existence of God. And that's very simply this. Anytime that you see something that is designed, you know there had to be a designer. Now, Sir Isaac Newton illustrated this point very well in a story that I have heard told about his life. Isaac Newton uh, had his own branch of physics, Newtonian physics. In fact, if I understand it correctly, Isaac Newton was one of the brightest minds that anybody in the scientific world has ever seen. You might not know that Isaac Newton wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. He was an avid Bible studier, has documents and page after page after page, hundreds of them, talking about biblical subjects. Isaac Newton had a friend who did not believe in God, who was an atheist, said that there was no God. Isaac Newton went down to a local carpenter shop, as the story is told, and told this carpenter to make for him a model of the solar system. Have the sun in the middle, the planets going around, make sure that those planets, the planets rather, going around, make sure that they were to scale as best as they knew how, paint them the colors that they thought they were, He had this model of the solar system created, and then he went down, picked it up, put it on a table in his house, and brought his atheistic friend. His atheist friend walked in, saw the model of the solar system on the table. He said, Sir Isaac Newton, that's an amazing model. Newton said, yes, turn the crank, see what happens to the planets. He turned the crank, the planets went around. Friend said, boy, that sure is neat. Who made it for you? Newton was waiting for that one. He said, nobody. It just popped into existence from the chemical properties in this room. Newton's friend chuckled a little bit and he said, no, no. Seriously, who made that for you? Newton said, nobody. Came into existence from absolutely no mind behind it. Well, the friend starts getting a little agitated and says, Isaac Newton, I demand that you tell me right now who made this for you, who created it, who designed it. This doesn't just happen by accident. He said, No, it doesn't. He said, what kind of thinking are you using to say that the solar system with the real sun and the real planets just popped into existence with no mind behind them, but this crude model that doesn't match their eloquence, that doesn't match their complexity... This crude model could not have, but the planets and the sun could have. He said, that just doesn't make sense. And he's right. That just doesn't make sense. Anytime that you see design, you know there has to be an intelligent designer. Let me illustrate. Suppose you're walking on the beach. You look down, you see a laptop computer. You pick it up, you press the on button. It pops on. You think, all right, this is my lucky day. Laptop computer comes on, you hit the on button, it boots up fast. You see it's got all kinds of capabilities. You see a word processing document, you click it, you start typing something. Sure enough, 
processes words. You can delete them, move them around, all kinds of stuff. Then there's a, a video game on there. So you click it. Boy, it's got the best graphics you've ever seen for any computing devices. 3D almost high definition graphics. It's amazing. You think, wonder where this computer came from. There's a guy walking on the beach. He's got a white lab coat on. He has on his lab coat his name, and then behind it he's got a Ph.D. with a little asterisk. That asterisk takes you down to the bottom of this little insignia that says he's got a Ph.D. from MIT in personal computing origination. This guy's got a Ph.D. from where laptops come from. You think, my lucky day. You say, sir, just found this laptop. Could you tell me how it got here? He said, let me see it. You pass it. He said, yes. Yes, I can tell you how this got here. You say, great, how did it get here? He said, billions of years ago, there was something like lightning that struck this beach and caused plastic to form. You say, hold on just a second. I understand that we've seen lightning strike sand and cause things like glass to form. But has anybody ever seen plastic form in that way? He said, no, but it must have happened because the keyboards are plastic. Please don't interrupt. Billions of years ago, something like lightning struck the sand, caused plastic to form. That plastic was washed out into the ocean. It was battered against coral reefs. And while it was being battered, it was chipped into perfectly shaped square keys. Those perfectly shaped square keys were washed through a school of blue mussels that put an adhesive on the back of those keys. At the same time, they were washed through a school of octopi that sprayed ink on them in a random fashion, but somehow you got the Arabic alphabet on these keys. And while that was occurring, there was copper that was in its ore form that was washed down from a local mountain, pushed into a deep hydrothermal vent. It was smelted underneath the ocean surface. It was pulled out into a wire Part of that was hooked to the back of a shark. The other part was hooked to the back of a turtle. It was pulled out, and as they were swimming away from each other, crabs intermittently snipped the... And you say, have you ever seen that stuff happen? No, but we obviously have to account for it with some naturalistic process because we have wires and we have plastic. You say, I'll just take my laptop back, thank you. You take it back, you flip it over, and on the back it says Dell. You think, you know what, I think I've got a better explanation. I think there was an intelligent person or group of people that got together and designed this computing device. Now, I thought you guys were smart before about three days ago until I realized just how brilliant you are. You might not know how smart you are. Let me tell you the fact that I learned, uh, I'm going to say, five days ago. Your synapses in your brain have so many connections that your brain outputs the amount of information every single second that it would take every personal computer in the world to process. You understand what I'm telling you? Every single laptop or desktop computer in the world, if they were all trying to process information at once, the information your brain puts out in a second, one second, would fill every single personal computer in the world every single second. So it could only handle one of you. You understand what I'm saying? One of you, every single second, puts out so much information that every laptop in the world cannot process it. Uh, your brain, they say it's uh, about three pounds, average, compute, average person. Say it feels like unbaked bread dough when you poke them. I don't know who does that for fun, but it's <laughs> what they tell us. can process information at 270 miles an hour. You can hold in your brain that you can recall the information in 500 sets of encyclopedias. Now, when I started doing this lesson, that was impressive. That was back when everybody knew what an encyclopedia was, you know. Now, now they don't. Uh, now I've got to, you know, convert it to like thumb drives or something. 
500 sets of encyclopedias. You understand that a, a set of encyclopedias is 26 encyclopedias, one for each letter. And each one of those encyclopedias would have 1,000 pages front and back. Your mind that you can recall can store enough information that it would fit in 500 sets of encyclopedias. Atheists are forced to admit that your brain is the most three most complex three pounds of matter in the universe. And there is not a single person that I have ever met that would say a laptop computer came into existence from blind random chance processes over multiplied eons of time. Not a one. And then you compare your brain that every single second puts out enough information to keep every single personal computer busy in the world and we're expected to believe that somehow that came about by blind chance processes? That's absurd. And that's why Paul said over in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Since the beginning of creation, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even His eternal power and His Godhead. In 1976, the year that I was born, a man by the name of Thomas B. Warren was debating a man by the name of Anthony Flew. Let me give you just a little background about this particular debate. Anthony Flew at the time was recognized... Now listen to me close. This is no exaggeration. I'm not trying to blow this out of proportion. Anthony Flew in 1976 was recognized as the world's leading atheist by practically every single person alive. He had written a 1,000-page philosophical paper, The Presumption of Atheism, that he presented at the Socratic Society in the 60s when C.S. Lewis was the chair of the Socratic Society. C.S. Lewis had the Socratic Society. He would allow atheists and unbelievers to present papers, and then he would try to respond to those. From the time that Anthony Flew presented that paper to the Socratic Society, it was more widely distributed, more widely published, and more widely read than any atheistic paper in existence. And for the next five decades, it would be. From 1960, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000, his paper was the most widely distributed atheistic philosophical paper in the world. Now, he met Thomas Warren in Denton, Texas in 1976 for a four-night debate. In his book that he put out when he was about 82 years old, Anthony Flew said he spoke to more people in a live audience. On those nights, they spoke to about 5,000 people every single night. He said, spoke to more people in the live audience in that debate than he had ever spoken to anybody for the entirety of his atheistic career. This man was the leading atheist in the world for approximately 50 years. Now, Thomas B. Warren meets him in Denton, Texas in 1976. He puts up a picture of a prosthetic hand, an artificial limb. And he says, Dr. Flew... Did this prosthetic limb have a designer? Now, several years ago, I was doing a little research and ran across a 10-pound uh, metal alloy arm that they had invented, a man by the name of Dr. Kukin. And his team of researchers had invented this 10-pound metal alloy arm, hooked it to the shoulder of a 26-year-old Marine. It had six motors in it that were attached to the fingers. They actually took the nerves from her shoulder, hooked them to the motors so that when she thought about moving her fingers, she could. Now, if I understand it correctly, uh, the wiring was problematic, and so she would think about moving her pinky, and her thumb would move. And finally, they got it to where she would think about moving her pinky, and her pinky would move. But it was the most advanced technology that they had ever, ever seen in prosthesis. Here's what they said. This is why they were so excited. Said she can now fold a pair of pants without using a hard surface. She doesn't have to put it down on any type of board or, or countertop or anything. Said she can hold a jar of spaghetti and she can scrape out the remaining spaghetti sauce with the other hand and we've never seen anything like it in prosthesis. But, he said, here's what Dr. Cuban said. But it's clumsy. Clumsy? The thing cost $4 million. Researchers working hours and hours, thousands of hours, the most brilliant researchers in the world, 
And it's clumsy? Compared to what? Just your hand. Your regular old, ordinary, average, run-of-the-mill human hand. Thomas B. Warren put the picture of the prosthetic limb up. Said, did this prosthetic limb, did this artificial hand have a designer? What's the down aside? Yes. Yes, it did. Puts a picture of a human hand up. He says, Dr. Flew, did this have a designer? What, what would happen if you took a hammer to a prosthetic finger and smashed it accidentally and came back in a couple weeks to see what happened to it? It's still going to be smashed, isn't it? What happens if you accidentally smash your finger? If you smash it so bad that there are little bitty chips of bone, your body is so well designed that there's an enzyme in your body that eats bone. Your body sends that enzyme to the little chips of bone and it eats those chips of bone so that they don't cause your finger to get infected. Does that scare you? That there's an enzyme in your body that eats bone? Oh, but your body's so well designed, it doesn't scare you at all because you don't think that somehow that enzyme is going to get loose and eat all of the bones that are necessary, do you? And yet, if there wasn't unbelievably advanced design behind your body, that would be a very real possibility. And after it gets through eating all those little bitty chips of bone, it starts to rejuvenate that place where you broke your finger. And sometimes, if you were to come back in six weeks or eight weeks or so, and you were to look at the place where you had smashed your finger, your finger would be stronger than it was the day before you broke it. Oh, and you come back eight weeks later to that prosthetic limb, and what's happened to it? Still smashed, isn't it? So Thomas B. Warren puts a human hand up there and he says, Dr. Flew, does this have a designer? Flew says, nope. Warren says, well, how did it get there? Flew said, it just grew there. It just grew there. That's what he said in 1976. He said, it just grew there. That was in 1976. In about the year 2004... He came out with a book titled, There is No God. That's what you would expect from the world's leading atheist for the last five decades, except it was a bombshell to the atheistic community because that wasn't really the title. You see, it said, There is no God. The no was marked out. There was an A put over the no. And the actual title was, There is a God, how the world's most prominent atheist became a believer. In about the year 2004, when Thomas, when Anthony Flew was 82 years old, he said, I've looked at the world in such a degree, to such a degree, and I have seen the design behind the human genetic information and animals and their genes and their DNA. He said, I have to conclude, I am forced to conclude that there is a supernatural, intelligent, Designer. I, I thought it was the people who were religious that were checking their brains at the door. That weren't following the evidence where it lived. That just believed in a God because, hey, that's what their mama's always taught. And the world's leading atheist for five decades comes forward and says, I've been wrong my whole life, and guess what? All of you who have believed me have been wrong too. Well, you think atheists like Richard Dawkins took that sitting down? Richard Dawkins who is now probably the world's leading atheist, said, this guy's senile. said he's 82 years old. He's thinking about dying, and so he's trying to cover his bases. Here's why he's wrong. He put all these reasons. Anthony Flew came back. He said, I'm not senile. I know exactly what I'm talking about, and here's why you're wrong. Bam, 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 bam. Drilled him at 82 years old. That's exciting. He was forced by the evidence to conclude that there's a God. Here's what's saying. In his book, one of the people who was asking him questions said, uh, all right, you believe that there's a God? Flew said, yeah, yeah, I do. I believe that there's a God. The guy said, are, are you going to be religious at all? Have you looked into what God you think this God is or what religion you think is the truth? What about Christianity? He said. Anthony Flew said, uh, from what I know about Christianity, 
looks like it could have as much or more evidence to prove its validity than any religion out there. But I'm just going to be content to leave it at I think there's a God and I'm going to go no further. And he died. He died believing in a God and yet never trying to discover what that God wanted him to do. You see, Paul stood in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill talking to the most brilliant minds of the day and he said, God has arranged it so that you would grope for Him as if you were in the dark and try to find Him though He is not far from each one of you. If you come to the conclusion that there is a God, then the next logical question is, what does God want from me? How sad to see a person cast off 50 years of incorrect information to arrive at there's a God, and then to say, but that's as far as I'm going. You know what the book of James says? He says, even the demons believe and they tremble. Who would leave their life hanging in the balance believing that there's a God and yet not trying to find that God's will for their life? I can't imagine that. That to me is one of the most frightening, saddest, tragic states of death that a person could arrive at to know that there is something more on the other side of eternity, but I'm just not going to check into it. I've, I've done all the mental work I can do on this side of this life. You know what the question is for you tonight. You know there's a God. If you're thinking rationally and honestly, you've got to conclude that there is, and the next question is what does He want from you? If that God created you, then He has the prerogative to tell you what you should be doing. And He's the only one. What does that God want from you? That God wants you to believe in Him and His Son, Jesus Christ, with all of your heart. That God wants you to repent of your sins and be buried in water baptism for the forgiveness of those sins after you have freely confessed that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that God wants you to come out of that watery grave of baptism as a totally forgiven new creature and live faithful until you die. Pretty simple, isn't it? But that's what He wants from you. Are you willing to do what your Creator wants you to do? That's the question that comes to you tonight. It's a question you'll have to answer as we stand and as we sing.